Those words this morning, Lord, your mercies leading us home. Your word is one of those mercies, revealing your will and your way, your word to us, not leaving us in darkness or ignorance, but giving us all that we need for daily life and godliness. And so once again this morning, pray that your spirit would lead and teach, convict, convince, and encourage us day by day as we navigate all that is laid before us. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the commentaries I consulted in my preparation is a commentary by an author, Philip Riken. And the opening words in the commentary I thought would be helpful to us as, uh, as a launching pad uh, beginning with this particular series. He says that Exodus is an epic tale of fire, sand, wind, and water. The, uh, the adventure takes place under the hot desert sun just beyond the shadow of the Great Pyramids. There are the two mighty nations, Israel and, and Egypt, led by two great men, Moses, who is the liberating hero, and Pharaoh, who is the enslaving villain. Almost every scene is a masterpiece, and I think you know that because even in the Sunday school we teach these scenes, these events to the children. The baby in the basket, the burning bush, the river of blood and the other plagues, the angel of death crossing of the Red Sea, the manna in the wilderness, the water from the rock, the thunder and lightning on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, the golden calf and the glory of the tabernacle. That's, that's what's ahead of us. And when I read that, I thought to myself, man, it's going to be exciting to dig into this and, and just see what it is that, that we're going to learn about God and, and what we're going to learn about life under God. Well, for the Jews, it is the story that defines their existence, the rescue that made them God's people. For us believers, for us Christians, it is the gospel of the Old Testament, God's first act of great redemption. Well, today we're going to begin our journey through the book of Exodus. And trusting, I am trusting that we, from the very beginning and to the end, that we are going to see that Exodus is about and for the glory of God. God to be exalted, God to be honored. Trust that God is going to lead us in that direction. And not just the exodus and the application, the extension of the book as it applies to us these many thousands of years later, is that God does everything for his glory. I hope that message is going to be reinforced and it will penetrate into your own heart and, and lead you to a response of, of greater depths of worship. Because the truth of the matter is, like these people that we are going to encounter in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel, we don't always see the glory of God. Isn't that true? We, we should, we ought to, but we don't because sometimes we doubt God. Sometimes we question Him. And the truth be said, sometimes we neglect Him. At times we disobey Him, we forget about Him. And even at times we rebel against Him. 
Yet, and as we will see in this book, He remains our Redeemer, and He remains God who is worthy to be worshipped. So the psalmist, uh, uh, years later, looking back on this generation, or what we would say is that generation of Exodus, uh, reports in, in Psalm 106 and verse 7, our fathers back then, when they were in Egypt and, and did not consider your wondrous works, uh, what was wrong with them? How could they not consider the wondrous works of God? They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Verse 8, yet he saved them for his name's sake. Don't miss that. For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. Another well-known author, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he says of the book of Exodus, the great end of God's works, which is so variously expressed in Scripture, is indeed one. And this one end is most properly and comprehensively called the glory of God. And so with that said, now I want to begin as we uh, uh, begin our journey in chapter 1 and follow with me, please, in your Bible. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt uh, with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, uh, Python and, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In, in their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king, king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And Pharaoh commanded all his people, 
every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Well, I wonder if that passage has prompted an immediate question in your mind. It certainly did to me. You may be thinking, as I did, how is it feasible? How is it feasible? How is it even reasonable to say that the Exodus is for the glory of God when in the very first chapter we encounter God's people subjected to prolonged, severe, and unjust suffering? Something wrong here. We would think something wrong. How can this be for the glory of God when their presence in Egypt was God's doing? God bringing them to that place of injustice. We know the story. Go back to the end of Genesis, those closing chapters. God had worked by having Joseph, remember, in charge. And the then Pharaoh uh, had allowed Joseph in, in bringing all of his family into the area. And the famine back in, in their homeland had forced them uh, to come just for the sake of their survival. But, but God was behind that. It was God's doing. But now as the years have unfolded and rolled on, a new set of circumstances have arisen. As we read in our passage in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This king is threatened by the, the presence of this mushrooming and growing nation in the midst of Egypt. And, and so he, he contrives a plan. Now we need to just pause and think about that. You have a situation arising in a nation. You have these people known as the people of God amongst themselves. They are the people of God. You have this nation dominating over them. The king is threatened by them. And so he begins to think strategically. He contrives a plan so as to weaken, so as to, so as to inca incapacitate them by inflicting hardship on them. The hardship is evident in our passage. In verse 11, we're told taskmasters. And I would imagine strong men with whips driving the people to hard work in mortar and stone. Heavy burdens were set over them. Hard work uh, that weighed them down. In verse 12, we're told that they were oppressed. The Egyptians ruthlessly made them work as slaves. In other words, there was no personal freedoms. Made their lives bitter and, and hard service, verse 14. That's bad. It's terrible. And it gets worse. The physical hardship we know is tough. But Pharaoh, in his conniving and strategic thinking, he gets meaner and harsher. And he has the little boys killed at birth and then continuing in his malicious manner drowning the newborn boys in the Nile River verse 21 now here's the dilemma that I want us to consider this morning we have on the one hand the people of God there can be no question about that on the other hand we have bitter suffering. And these two are in the same pot. They're together. 
the people of God are suffering. And so it's fair to ask the question, why would God bring them to Egypt, allow them a season of flourishing and safety, but then for them to end up as a nation, as victims of injustice, as slaves of Pharaoh? It's the kind of question people ask and have asked repeatedly down through the ages. I think we could ask that question as Central Baptist Church. Just thinking back a few weeks now, a man of God giving his life in serving the poorer, disadvantaged community, and one of those men taking his life, murdering him. Man of God doing something what we would consider to be good, and yet there is this injustice perpetrated and carried out. And, and so the question, the question is, why, why are God's people, why are we as God's people uh, experiencing from time to time hardship and injustice and difficulty? And it has happened down through the ages. It's not isolated. It's not, it's, it's not just for a small group of people. There, there are martyrs that can be identified down through the centuries. There are martyrs currently that are being listed up, as it were, in countries, closed countries, we call them. There are even people among us, because you identify as a Christian, being ridiculed by those who work with you or those alongside of you. There are those who are being marginalized because of their particular profession of faith. How do we understand? How do we understand? How do we pull together this reality that the people of God suffer? What does God allow? And I want to add to that. Some people stop there. They're wrong. Why does God allow and even ordain pain and suffering? And so to begin to answer that question, I'm going to be looking at this passage there is more to your life. I want you to think about that this morning. There's more to your life. There's more to your circumstances than what you see. Pain and suffering, and my first point this morning, exposes that there is a history behind the history. It would be a big mistake to conclude that the Egyptian cruelty toward the people of God is just about political strategy and expediency. Ah, this is a bad king who did bad things and he was self-serving and he was looking after his own skin. That, that, that would be a mistake to, to see that as, as the end and, and, and all that was taking place. Because if we understand the Bible correctly, there is much more going on behind the scenes which we do not see. My point is that what you see in life and the world around you and, and what we together experience in the present is really part of something else as well. There's something bigger. There's something else going on. There's more to life and history than, than what you see and, and, and your life and experience is part of a bigger picture. And I'm going to try and show that to you in just three little subpoints. And the first one being that there are two levels of reality at work in history. Do you know that? 
You have two levels of reality. There's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. That's putting it bluntly, putting it plainly. But let me go a little bit further. What, what you and I see uh, is one thing, but there's also a spiritual and unseen spiritual drama that is unfolding between these two kingdoms, the one of light and the one of darkness. You say, hang on, where do you get that from? Well, let's look at the Bible. We're given some insight into this drama right at the beginning when God speaks to Satan. Right in Genesis chapter 3, Satan had led Adam and Eve and as a consequence all of humanity into sin. And this is what God says in chapter 3 and verse 15. God says, I will put enmity, there's going to be a wedge, between you and the woman, Satan and the woman, and between your offspring, there's a community, and her offspring, there's a community, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What, what is God saying to Satan, and how do we understand that so that we, in our present situation, understand something of the dynamic we don't see? You see, from this declaration by God, we see that from then on, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the human race will be divided into two different groups. Two different groups of people that will be at enmity. They're not going to be friends. They're going to be enemies. The two groups are incompatible. They have different allegiances. They have different values. They have different loyalties. They have different intentions, different expectations. The one group belongs to Satan. His offspring. He's the representative head of his offspring. They will oppose they will seek to destroy the other group belonging to the offspring of the woman. And in spite of seeming success by Satan and his offspring, by inflicting real hurt, notice what God says, you shall bruise his heel. There's hurt being perpetrated, being brought about. In spite of that, God declares that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, ultimately pointing to Jesus, he shall bruise your head. The victory will come in the other group. And so from that time forward, Genesis 3.15, we have seen repeatedly and constantly, and can I say presently, this being worked out in the unfolding of history. Go right back to the beginning and cite as an example evidence the sons of Adam uh, and Eve, the one belonging to Satan, Cain. What did he do? He hated, there was enmity, he hated and killed the one who belonged to the Lord, Abel. And then secondly, not only do we have these two levels, uh, we see Satan is opposed to God and to the people of God. I wonder if we could have the line, the... the um, the screen scrolling only once I've been there. Uh, otherwise, I think folk are distracted and running ahead of me. So Satan is opposed to God and to the people of God. So we move on to Exodus 1. We can see that there's far more to the story than political strategy and expedience. This is not just about a king who has an idea. God had designated Israel as the instrument 
as the nation into which the Messiah would be born. It's a plan. It's no surprise to see that Satan then is hard at work making every effort to destroy the instrument, to destroy the Israelites in an effort to prevent the realization of God's salvation plan. You can apply that in so many ways, and it answers so many questions about what's happening even in the present evangelical world. Let's start with missions. Why is it that there are closed countries? Why is it that, they are, are, um, that missionaries are prevented in propagating the gospel? It's not just because people are anti-evangelical. It's because behind that, behind the scenes, there is a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. And there is every, every effort being made to prevent God's plan being realized. I've often wondered to myself, why are there so many liberals? You know what I read this past week? Some of you, in fact, I heard it. I didn't read it. Did you know that Harvard University in the United States of America was started by evangelical Christians way back, I think it was in the 1700s, and it was started so that succeeding generations could uh, have trained pastors? But this past month or so, Harvard appointed an atheist chaplain. Why does that happen? Well, this is what happens. Because there is this effort, there is this constant work being done to prevent the instrument doing the job that God has intended them to do. And so if you find yourself being uh, challenged or, or held back or, or obstacles placed in front of you, this is not just random. Have a look at the passage in this particular instance in Exodus chapter 1. Satan's attacks against Israel are what? enslave the Israelites, verses 9 to 11. Or we get to verse 15, 16. Command the midwives to kill the male Israelite babies. He, there's an, an effort to exterminate this nation, God's designated nation. The command to all Egyptians to throw all male Israelite babies into the river. But I want to tell you the good news. From what we're told in Genesis 3... Verse 15, and consistently throughout the Bible, you will see that in this spiritual drama going on behind the scenes that we can't see, it is weighted against Satan. Why? It's weighted by Satan because God is at work accomplishing his purposes and bringing about the downfall of Satan and the emergence of his glory. I'm a runner. I tried to be a runner. And from time to time I have uh, injuries. And I've had a few times heel injuries. You can't run when you've got a bruised heel. But I'm not dead. Stamp on somebody's head and crush his brains. And he's dead. You get the point. So Satan... And, and all of those in his kingdom will make efforts at different levels to bruise the heel. But God, and of course we see it in the cross, and I'll get to that, will bruise the head. And so that brings me to my third point. Satan is fighting a losing battle. You see, what the king considers to be strategic uh, political maneuvering 
and even what Satan considers to be final and fatal blows of pain and suffering inflicted on God's people is actually the unfolding of God's plan. They say, hang on, where do you get that? Well, read your Bible. Many years, long before Exodus chapter 1, God spoke to Abraham. He spoke about a time when the people of God, when his people would fall into slavery. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, and they will be mistreated by a foreign nation. That was God's plan. That was why, through Joseph, he was bringing them to that place. But he adds, he adds alongside of this plan of God that is the promise of deliverance from the hands of the oppressor. Verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. The self-centered efforts of kings and governments and men to destroy the people of God or the malicious schemes of Satan to engineer the abortion of God's redemptive purposes always fail. That's, that's what God is showing us here, that we need to be encouraged by. Every effort made by Satan, every effort made by the people in the kingdom of darkness will ultimately fail. They always fail. Satan fails, his offspring fail in their malicious and destructive efforts toward God's people. They fail in being unable to prevent God's eternal salvation plan. They cannot, they will not succeed in stopping God from rescuing his people from the clutches of the evil intent. Now where does this point? It points to the pinnacle event of salvation history. And even at the cross we see exactly the same picture. The religious hierarchy fail. They, they thought they succeeded in bringing a conviction and placing Jesus on the cross. The soldiers fail. They, they mock him and they spit at him and they look at him at the cross and they question him. They, they think they succeed. Satan thought that the battle was done and victory was his. But after Jesus said, it is finished, three days later, he's raised from the dead. God is not frustrated. God's redemptive purposes are done. God emerges as victorious over Satan. What's he doing? He's showing us himself as the one who is all glorious. He's showing us the one who is victorious, the one who will always be vindicated, the one who always ought to get the credit. Now that's a theology. But I want to take this a little bit further today because if you want to live your life facing hardship, and, and we do face hardship, we are facing hardship uh, at different levels in our country at the moment, and, and we have people who serve our church in different places who face hardship. We need to do that with an understanding that there is more to life, your life today and tomorrow, there's more to life in, and your circumstances than what you see. And if you believe that, if you have that as a foundation and conviction, you will find your faith strengthened. And here's the, the one-liner. It's my second point. Knowing God is redemptively at work in history. All the time. Until the end of time. God is redemptively at work in history. Now I'm going to uh, divide that up into just four uh, brief points. I want us to consider God's purposes. Now, I'm also a people, and uh, 
thinking about what we people are like when God brings comfortable things into our lives. We all like comfortable things. We like to have healthy bodies. We like to have money in the bank. We, we like to have food on our tables. We like to have a roof over our head. We, we like to be safe. None of us likes to have four locks on the front door. None of us likes to go to bed at night knowing that, well, is there somebody going to be intruding and perhaps even slashing uh, our throats tonight? We, we don't like that. We, we like to be comfortable. We like to be safe. And when that happens, when we are healthy and wealthy and safe, we believe God is doing a good job. When unpleasant circumstances arise, illness, terminal illness, Poverty, there's no food on the table perhaps, or there's no employment, there's no job, and there's danger, there's this perpetual risk of, of one's personal safety. There is a temptation, if we're honest, to conclude that God has let us down, that he's failing. Our text shows us today that God's purpose is different from the way that we see things and the way that we expect things. I want to make it plain. While God does not delight in our suffering, His purpose is not just to make things in this world nice for us. It's a mistake to think that. If you think that God is just your servant to make things nice or comfortable, it's not true. God's purpose is always to further His plan of redemption. And when we speak of redemption, we speak about the final uh, stepping into heaven, but we also speak about the fact that there is a journey of sanctification, of redeeming, of transformation. So it is a saving us from sin, ultimately for the future, but also the saving and transforming us from sin in the present, changing us into the image of Christ. What does that leave us? It, it leaves us to understand that the purposes, this purpose that God has in his redemption plan requires God to govern things in a different way to accomplish his purposes than what we expect to just be comfortable. Now think about that in South Africa. We all want to be safe. We all want life to be good and, and to be flourishing and, and all the rest of it. But perhaps we need to be thinking. We need to be thinking, but, but what is God doing? And I'm going to say more about that just now. What, what is he doing to bring about his redeeming work in the people of God? As parents, we have a taste of this kind of dynamic. Certainly my approach as a parent, and I think most of us here would be that it was not our intention or purpose to give our, child, our children everything they want, just to make their lives comfortable. It's not true. Give a, give a child everything they want and everything they desire, they turn out to be brats and beasts. We know that. We have to nurture them. Sometimes we take them through difficulties and hardships and we let them experience that kind of thing because we know there is a greater purpose of nurturing them to be independent, mature adults. 
Now, to go back to the passage, I believe it would be fair to say that these Israelites, in the midst of their bondage and suffering, did not see the situation in terms of the bigger picture. As we're told in Galatians 4, that uh, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. I don't think they would have seen that. But the point I want to make is this. The fact that they did not see it did not mean it was not there and not true. And I want to encourage you. Sometimes we don't say, what is God doing? I'm asking that all the time in my life and in my family. What is God doing? But I want to go back to his word and say, yes, but God is doing something. God is at work. There are redemptive purposes. What they are, I don't know. But God's ways are not my ways. His views are bigger than my views. He's God and I'm a creature. Number two, God's discipline. The people of Israel groaned because of their bondage. That's what the passage tells us as we read on in chapter 2. And so they cried out. Their cry for help came up to God. We're told because of their hardship. Chapter 2 verse 23. During those many days the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now here's the point. Had they been comfortable in Egypt, Brafle, Sunny Skies, and Chevrolet, consumed with self, without any need before them, would they have been driven to their knees? Not a chance. Unlikely. Most of us know human nature is such that when we are self absorbed, and seemingly self-sufficient, we are less likely to bother about being de desperate for God. South Africans? Let me change that. South African Christians? Are we doubting God? Are we neglecting God? Have we strayed from God? Have we become self-absorbed? Is God bringing us to a place where we will be desperately calling out to Him, understanding who He is and who we are, and that He is the one that we ought to be focusing our thoughts and attention. You see, if this thesis is right, if it is true that we do not cry out to God until we're desperate, if that's true, one wonders what kind of calamity it will take to make Christians cry out to God. Brings me to number three, God's sympathy. The circumstances of the Israelites were such as I can understand. They must have thought that God had no concern for them, that he had forgotten about them. But when you read the passage and as the book unfolds, you begin to see God did have a concern for them. God had not forgotten them at all. Why? Very important. Again, a foundational truth. It was impossible for God to forget about them because he had bound himself to them by covenant, by agreement, by promise. Verse 24 of chapter 2. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He was committed to them. And so Satan is very anxious to persuade the people of God to draw false conclusions about God he will point to your difficulties he will seek to 
convince and assure you that God does not care. But I want to tell you that we experience what the New Testament describes and even the Old Testament pointed to the new covenant blessings of God. God is bound to us. God is committed to us. God will nurture us. We are His sheep. We're in His hands. And so we need to point to Him and to others and even remind ourselves, look at the cross, the undertakings of God, that which He accomplished in the new covenant blessings. Calvary, the cross, infallible proof that He cares. One last comment. God's promise. God's promise to them through Moses... Chapter 3, verse 8, I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of Egyptians and bring them out, up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The point is that uh, God is promising that the, as a nation, very important to see this as a nation, that as a nation they would enter the land of milk and honey. And here's the problem when you take a passage of Scripture in isolation. The land of milk and honey is not an end in itself in the unfolding revelation of the Bible. Rather, it is an event, it is an event, pointing to the ultimate land of milk and honey. Our focus ought to be on Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And folks, th th this is of extreme importance in the present. When the chips are down in your life, when things seemingly are hopeless when there is terminal disease that you're confronting as a believer there is always light at the end of the tunnel there's always hope stand on the promises of God promises that apply in this life and promises that apply to the eternal the new heaven and the new earth I want to close my conclusion today as a quote uh, from a missionary by the name of John G. Patton, lived in a previous uh, uh, century, and he was a missionary to the New Hebrides and did some work amongst cannibals. Cannibals are people who eat people. So that was the common practice in the New Hebrides before John G. Patton had gone there. A number of missionaries had tried to go, and they just had, were had for lunch. I want to read this paragraph because I believe it's a testimony of a man who in the midst of a crisis experienced the presence of God, there's something he knew about God that I want us to leave here today with. He knew that this God was redemptively at work in his life and the world around him. And as you go from here this morning, that's the challenge I want to leave uh, with you. God is at work in your life as it is, regardless of what you're facing, in the world around us, for redemptive purposes. Listen to John G. Patton. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets, that's guns, and the yells of the savages, Yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord 
draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Then he brings a challenge, and and this is the challenge uh, that I bring to us this morning as I close. If thus you, me, thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Have you a friend that will not fail you then? His name is Jesus. I think there was a hymn writer who wrote a song. What a friend we have in Jesus. Lord, may that be true for each one of us as we navigate, Lord, the reality of varying degrees of hardship. Us, Lord, not knowing what the future holds, you are ever knowing all things. May we live our lives understanding that you are at work accomplishing your redemptive purposes and Lord give us that confidence that we have this friend that will not fail us even then. Amen.